Welcome to Conversation Pace. My name is Brian Rossetti, the founder of V.02. In our last episode, we talked to Jack Daniels about his newly released autobiography, Luck of the Draw. This conversation was broken up into two parts. Part one, we covered the beginning of Jack's story leading up to his days as an Olympian. Part two, we learned about how he got into research and coaching and how his coaching approach evolved over the years. We discussed his time at Nike leading research efforts in their human performance lab. You'll find interest in learning about some of the famous athletes he's tested over the years. At that single lab in Exeter, New Hampshire, you had the great Jack Daniels, the great Joan Benoit Samuelson, Jeff Johnson, the guy who named Nike, and Mark Parker, former longtime CEO. Finally, we get into Jack's Cortland days where he made his mark on the coaching world, releasing his coaching principles and methodology outlined in Daniel's running formula for everyone to use. This is where it all comes together. His impact on the sport is immeasurable. Here's part two of Luck of the Draw. Hope you enjoy. Okay, Jack, so talk to us about post-Olympics, how you ended up in Sweden and... um, and what happened? What happened then? Well, Sweden was actually in between the two Olympics. Okay. Uh, I, I in in '57, I think it was. I I competed in the Swedish national championships in modern pentathlon. We we flew an American team over there to do that, and the Swedes had won every Olympic gold medal in pentathlon since the year 1904, I think until 1956 well they they won in 56 as a matter of fact and and i won the swedish national championship i was the first foreigner to ever win their national championship and that's where the picture on the front of my bio came from with the swedes throwing me up in the air (laughs) and and that's where I, i met that little girl when i won the swedish championship a little 10 year old girl went into a field and picked flowers and brought them to me and that's one of the greatest presents I ever got. And, and then Igor Novikov, the world championships were held in Sweden that same year. And a friend of mine, a Russian friend of mine, Igor Novikov, brought me one of those Russian wooden cluster dolls that uh-huh. they make over there. And he said it was from his wife. I guess he'd talked to his wife about me and I'd talked to people about him. And he, he was four times world champion in pentathlon. Really, really, really great. Anyway, a lot of people, yeah. So I went to school there in Stockholm for a year. And what that was study there. Did I tell you that? What did you study in Stockholm? You, you, everybody who went to the the school I went to, it's called the Gymnastic Central Institute. And everybody who was admitted to that school studied the same thing, which was physiology and sport in general, all kinds of sport. We went to school from eight in the morning till three thirty in the afternoon, six days a week for ten months, and they, were, they only admitted thirty-five men and thirty-five women into that school each year from all of Sweden, and they, they let me in as a foreigner. I was a thirty-sixth person, and wow. you had to, you had to do unbelievable classes. I mean, we had g- formal gymnastics uh, three six hours a week. And in the fall, we did orienteering competitions. In the winter, we did all kinds of cross-country skiing races. And we even had to do ski jumping. I'd never even been on skis before when I went there. And then we went up north of the Arctic Circle 
in April for two weeks of downhill skiing, and we slept overnight in caves that we dug into snowdrifts. <laughs> wow. I, I can tell you, it was in a, in a cave in a snowdrift that you dig with your shovel, and you sleep in there, and it could be zero degrees outside the cave, and it'll be probably in, almost in the 20s inside that cave. So you can sleep pretty well with a sleeping bag. And you, you you told me once that you kind of went right into downhill ski jumping, right? Um, oh yeah, yeah. We had a well. We we didn't do big jumps, but they were there. It was a fairly small. You only went probably ten meters or twenty meters through the air. You didn't do one of those great big things. And my biggest problem, because I'd never even skied before, my problem was. When I landed off the ski jump, was not to fall down because you have to lean far enough forward because you're landing on a steep downhill slope. And I, I finally, finally made it without falling down. And then I didn't know how to stop. And there was a highway just down at the end. <laughs> stop before you ran into the road. <laughs> so your time in Sweden was this was your first introduction to physiology. Yeah, it really was because I. I, my physiology teacher was Carol of Ostrand, and Ostrand was one of the top exercise physiologists in the world. And I got to, we got to be really close friends, as a matter of fact, and he was really, really good. He, he, his big interest was just physical fitness for people in general. And was this just luck, Jack, that, that Ostrand, I mean, he's a legend in Sweden, right? And, and considered oh, yeah. across the world. Was this just luck that you... You, this wasn't something you were shooting for to work with him at that point. No, no, I, I didn't even know he taught there. I, I just had a, a Swedish friend in their modern pentathlon team was a student there. And he said, you ought to come over here and go to school here. So I applied and got admitted and went to school and then met Ostrand in the, because he, he taught classes in the physiology classes in our, in our school. Unbelievable. Really nice guy. His wife was a medical doctor. He was a, a PhD, but he, he just, he wrote books about fitness and training. And oh, I mean, he was really, really good. So, and then, so post Olympics is when you met Balky, right? The German altitude scientist. Um, I, I had, I had met Balky in the 50s when I was at Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas, but we didn't do anything together. I just met him. And then so when I left Sweden, I I emailed or I mailed Balky and asked him if if he had any jobs that I could get a job with him. And he said, yeah. And uh, so he gave me a job, but it wasn't in Texas anymore. It was in Oklahoma City. Mm -hmm. It was actually in Norman, Oklahoma, where the University of Oklahoma is. And he he was running a lab there, and we were testing federal aviation agents, uh, the guys that run the, the landings and taking off of airplanes. And, and we were testing all those guys. And so I, all I did was work in the lab eight hours a day, five days a week, did that for a year. And one of Balky's bosses became a vice president up at Oklahoma City University. Oklahoma City is only about 20 miles from Norman, Oklahoma. And his son was going to go to school there. And he wanted, and Oklahoma City didn't have a, a track or field or cross country team. And as as the vice president of that school, this this guy said, do you want to come here and coach track and cross country? I'll, I'll start the sport for us. And so 
that's how I got coaching. He he got the Oklahoma City University, call them OCU. He got them to start track and cross country. They only for men because in those days they didn't have it for women yet. So and I, yeah, go ahead. Well, I fortunately it was they were a Division One school, NCAA Division One, and they only had twelve hundred students. It must have been the smallest Division One school in the world, and I recruited some Australian runners based on my pentathlon days in the 56 Olympics from Australia. Um, some guys I met, and I, I had a I had a freshman, Australian freshman, who won the Texas relays, the Kansas relays, and the Drake relays. And he, he went to Division One nationals and placed fifth at wow. nation, as a freshman. So, Jack, just to – I want to catch up here. So, the – so you met Balky. He was actually doing VO2 max tests while you were a pentathlete, right? This was in San Antonio yeah. or no? Yeah, he was doing that. He he was brought to the U.S. by the by the U.S. government by NASA hmm. to help the United States uh, develop their sport or their their moon trip because he, he was an altitude specialist in Germany. So they thought it would be good to have an altitude specialist for these flights we're taking up to the moon. And that was your first experience seeing a VO2 max test. Did you take yeah. one too, or you got to witness it? Yeah, I got to, he, well, he, he actually tested some of us in the pentathlon when he was down in San Antonio, but the, the new job he had up in Oklahoma was just working for the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. And all all we did was test people every day. We just tested, tested, tested. And that's about all I did was do VO2 max tests. <laughs> so you so you had your interaction with Balky and then Ostrand and and you're still you and then you get into coaching at Oklahoma City. Um, by chance, right? That just kind of all fell together, and you still don't even know if you wanted to be a researcher at that point. You just happened to to come across these guys, which probably they probably influenced you. That's right. I didn't. I didn't plan to do any research. I just. Well, I want. I decided to get my master's degree, and I did that at OU while I was working with Balky there. Mm. Uh, but I had. I didn't have any idea what I was going to do after I got my master's degree. But I, when. When Balky's boss with the FAA went to Oklahoma City and became vice president and said he would start track and cross country if I would coach him. So that's why I got involved in coaching. Ah, okay. I didn't plan to, to be a coach. You hadn't planned at that point to be a coach. And then you you sort of fell into the coaching job at Oklahoma City, right? And you guys yeah. had pretty good success. Why? I mean, what was your approach at that point without really knowing or having any experience? What was your approach like? <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting because I had some scholarships. We were Division One. I. I had some some scholarships. And as I mentioned, I, I got three Australian guys to come. And I got a Native, Native American kid from Montana that one of my – college friends knew and he was he was really good he ran as a freshman for me he ran 416 in the mile and i i had these as i mentioned i had these couple australian guys we actually beat oklahoma university and oklahoma state in cross country wow and we're a school with 1200 total student body and and i i recruited a guy from to, to run the 400 for me from a tiny, tiny town out in the Oklahoma panhandle. <laughs> and, 
he it was the tiniest town. This this kid ran a forty eight something in the four hundred in high school. Wow. And and his tiny little school, he used to drive the school bus because his home was the farthest from the school. So he'd pick all the kids up, drop them off on the way driving home. And in the morning, he'd drive back to school and pick them up on the way in again. <laughs> I, I love the quote you, in the book. You talk about Abe Lemons, your first athletic director. Oh, yeah. He told you to coach runners, all you have to do is tell them to run as hard as they can and keep turning left. <laughs> That's, that, that was Abe Lemons. <laughs> the most amazing thing about Abe Lemons is that, I mean, he's the reason that they did well in, in basketball. That tiny little school, Oklahoma City University, they used to make it to the Nationals almost every year in basketball, in Division One basketball. But he yeah, did good when I was growing up, too. Yeah, and he, he actually later on became the coach at the University of Texas when I was down there. Mm. So Lemons went everywhere. So you had, you had a lot of success, but you quote yourself uh, well, as I, your coaching philosophy was just run with the leaders, stay well, with them, right? Well, the amazing thing is that every job I got was canceled just about, <laughs> starting with Oklahoma City. Because my OCU coaching job was going really well, and we got a new president, and I don't know who talked him into it, but he dropped track and cross country as sports at the university hmm. completely. So, I mean, I was teaching exercise physiology, but I wondered now I was getting interested in coaching, and I wanted to do that. And I got the offer to coach in Peru, down in yeah. South America. And there were two of us that got hired that year. The other guy was Larry Snyder. Probably hadn't heard of Larry Snyder, and he taught me. He's he's the one who told me coaches don't make great athletes. Great athletes make coaches. And Larry Snyder, the first year he coached at Ohio State, he had a freshman on his team named Jesse Owens. <laughs> that's pretty fitting. And I guess that's why he said athletes make coaches, because because Larry was made into a pretty good coach. And the two of us coached in in Peru for a year and then Peru decided they didn't want foreigners coaching their team anymore so that job ended Ooh. wherever I go they cancel the job so so base you had said in the book that um, you could have stayed at at Oklahoma to teach physiology at that point right but you at that point you got into coaching now you wanted to coach that's right yeah I didn't mind teaching but I wanted to do both. Yeah, I wanted to keep teaching physiology and and coach also. So that's why I went to Peru. And when, when they, they decided they didn't want to have foreigners coaching their team anymore. So I left there and started my Ph.D. at the University of Michigan. OK. And that's where I met the world's craziest runner. Yeah. <laughs> the guy on the track right? that you would watch. Yeah, our, our lab overlooked the track, and every day about 11 o'clock, this guy came out and started running laps on the track. And at noon, we'd go to lunch, and he was still running. We'd come back at 1, he was still running, and 2, he was still running. And so I went down and talked to him. I said, well, you run a lot, don't you? And he said, yeah. I said, how much do you run? He says, oh, I run 20. I said, you run 20 laps? He said, no, no, 20 miles. <laughs> 80 laps. I said, on the track? He said, yeah. I said, you do that every day? He said, no, I don't run on Sunday. <laughs> so this guy was doing 120 miles a week on the track. And I find, I asked him if he 
ever thought about maybe doing some less work, but a little faster. And he said, no, no, no. The whole idea of his running, that was his relaxation time because he was a law student. He was studying for the bar exam. Mm. And he said, I'm either eating, sleeping or studying. And this is my time to relax. So I <laughs> about three hours every day and run 20 miles on the track. Wow. Um so, so Jack, talk to us a little bit more about how your coaching developed, because this is long, long, long before you wrote the book um, and developed your, your methodology. You had said because of your swimming, you were swimming as a club athlete in Oklahoma, right? And you, by chance, you met Bob Timmons, who was Jim Ryan's coach, right? So oh, that's right. Did you learn anything from Timmons? Did he influence some of your early coaching or how did you approach, you know, training and doing workouts with your athletes? No, I, I, I didn't learn anything from Timmons except to, to avoid killing your students. <laughs> uh, you cannot believe the workouts he gave Jim Ryan. And I, I have to say to this day that Jim Ryan was probably the, the most talented runner that, that ever has been in the world period. Because the first step Jim Ryan ever took running was in sophomore year of high school, in the fall of his sophomore year of high school. First step he ever took. And in the spring of his junior year, about a, just about a year and a half later, maybe 20 months later, he broke four minutes in a mile. Unbelievable. I'll, I'll challenge anybody to tell me somebody in the world anywhere who's broken four minutes within a, a year and a half of their first step of running. Yeah, that's incredible. He was able to stay healthy considering the, they were basically swim workouts, right, that were converted to, oh. to doing running intervals, right? So talk a little bit first, because I love in the book how you talk about the reasons that swimmers can essentially train harder than runners, and then talk a little bit about Jim's training. Yeah, well, it, I've, I got involved in testing swimmers as well, because I was a swimmer myself, and I I thought swimming and running, they're similar sports, individual sports. And so I've, I've done a lot of testing in the lab of, of swimmers as well as runners. But the, the thing I figured out is if you're swimming event in a swimming pool, not open water, but in a pool where most competitive swimming is, swimmers get to rest quite a bit of the time. And they have a big advantage over runners so they can train harder. The first thing is swimmers are horizontal when they're swimming and the blood flows from their legs and from their arms back to their heart muscle and back the blood flows back and forth in a horizontal direction much easier than it does when you're running and it's trying to blood trying to return from your legs up against gravity into your heart so the swimmers have a better cardiovascular situ situation number two swimmers also get to rest on every turn I know they, they flip and they use muscles to flip and they use muscle to push off the wall, but most of their progress is done with their arms. And every time they turn, they're not using their arms. And when they push off the wall and they glide until they slow down to start swimming again, just look at it this way. If you get to rest your arm muscles for three seconds on every turn and you're swimming laps of the pool and 20 seconds, you're resting three out of every 20 seconds. That's a pretty good percentage of the time. 
So in other words, the faster you swim, the less time you spend swimming and the greater percentage of your time is spent resting on the turn. <sighs> like if you could swim, if you could swim laps in three seconds, then you'd rest 100 percent of the time because you're gliding for three seconds off of all the turns. <laughs> right. So they can train very hard and they do train very hard. They train way harder than runners. And that was one of the a typical example of of a work a week of training that that Ryan did when he was a, just a junior in high school. Junior in high school. I won't even bother with each day, but Sunday he only ran once. All the other days he ran a morning 4 or 5 mile run and then an afternoon workout. So his Sunday run was about a 10 mile run in about 64 minutes and his I'll, I'll skip Monday and Tuesday. They were hard workouts, but Wednesday he did 50 400s. He was <laughs> 69 seconds each, starting one every three minutes. That means he got almost two minutes rest, and he did 50 of those. Wow. And I, I asked I ask Timmons, and then, oh, well, and the interesting thing is that was on a Wednesday, and the very next day on Thursday, he did eight 800s. So the 400s, Jack, were just threshold, just broken up into smaller work bouts, essentially. Well, I, I guess it, it's hard to say whether they were threshold or interval, but yeah. they were they were moving, and and I asked Timmons, did he have anybody else on his high school team that did that 50? He said, yeah, I had 24 of them. <laughs> he said, but one kid quit after 40. He said, I knew he was never going to be any good. <laughs> That's what he told me. That's tough. That is tough. He just, I guess, fortunately, Ryan was just capable of not getting hurt. Did you? Really hard not getting hurt because he sure lived through it. Did you like doubles as a coach? Did you use doubles in your your programming for your athletes much or no? You mean two two sessions a day? Yeah. In college running, you can get away with it uh, if they got, they don't have an early morning class. I used to try to what I used to try to do was have my runners total a certain amount of running time per per day or per week, and if if they could total that without running twice a day, that was okay with me. So I would just kind of prescribe. I, I said, freshman, I wanted freshmen to try to run 40 miles a week. And if you can get your 40 miles a week just running seven times a week, that's about six six miles each time you run on an average. Yeah. That's not, it's not too hard if you got a 10-mile run in on a Sunday for a long run. And others, others I, I had two women, unbelievable women, but I'm getting a little ahead of myself because this happened later on. Yeah. But uh, well, we'll I, talk- one, of them, one of them never ran fewer than 70 miles a week, and the other one never ran more than 30 miles a week, and they were both national champions. Yeah, it's so individual, right? I think that's the problem with a lot of programs is it's, it's sort of like a one-size-fits-all approach, you know? Right. right. Yeah, well, well I when – I, what, I, I went to Michigan, as I mentioned, yeah. to, to study with a guy named John Faulkner. And John Faulkner was a friend of Balky's. So he was the exercise physiology guy at Michigan University. And I don't know, did I tell you that I had to take a biology undergraduate class when I was at Michigan? No, I don't, I don't think it was interesting because I had never taken biology. And you can't get a PhD degree in physiology without ever having biology as an undergrad. So I was taking a freshman biology class at Michigan and <laughs> my lab partner, 
in the lab for that class was a girl and she was really smart and sharp. One day I finally asked her, I said, so are you full-time student or you work part-time and go to school part-time? She said, no, I have a job. I said, what do you do? She said, I'm a playboy bunny. <laughs> so that, that, that was my lab partner in, at Michigan. At Michigan. I, I always I always say I think she's probably a medical doctor in some hospital someplace because she was sharp. She was really good. That's cool. Interesting. Um, but so, then Balky, yeah, go ahead. My friend Balky left the FAA and became a professor at Wisconsin. That's so how that, you got to Wisconsin. That's why I, tra- I transferred from Michigan to, to Wisconsin to do my Ph.D. work. And, and- Balky. So when we get into Wisconsin, that's when the summer altitude studies began, right, for you? Yeah, actually, we had done some before I went to Wisconsin. I mentioned John Faulkner at Michigan was the reason I went to Michigan, because we had done some altitude research that Faulkner was involved in with us. So we we started in the, in the early or mid-19s. 60s when they said the next Olympics are going to be there are 68 Olympics are going to be in Mexico City. That's when Balky said we should we need to start. I was in Oklahoma at the time. Uh, Balky said we need to start doing some altitude research to get the teams ready for Mexico City. So when he went to Wisconsin to be a professor, I transferred there and all my research was basically altitude. And who you got you mentioned in the book that the U.S. Olympic Committee. They never funded the research. Who, how were you guys able to do this? Oh, you can't believe how great these athletes were back then. Because, like, we used to go, this was before Wisconsin even, and during Wisconsin. Well, we would go up to Colorado, uh, mostly to Alamosa, Colorado, and we'd spend about three or four weeks there doing research, testing the runners on the track and in the lab and testing them before they went and testing them again after they came back down and uh we were doing some really, really good altitude research at that time. And you can't believe that the, those runners of those days, we didn't even pay for them to come up there. They had to pay their own way. <laughs> and can you imagine Jim Ryan, world record holder, paying his own way to go up and be part of a research study that, that we're not even providing him funding for? In wow. fact, he worked. Ryan worked in a grocery store in Alamosa at whatever he made, 75 cents an hour, to pay for his meals and room while he was up there in Alamosa. (laughs) One day, a a guy came into the grocery store where Ryan was working and with a little handheld recorder, and he said, do you mind if I interview you? And uh, and Ryan politely excused himself. He says, well, there's a truck just showed up in the back with supplies, and I've got to go out. Unfortunately, I've got to go out and unload that truck. And this guy that was asking to interview him said, oh, that's okay. I'll get another grocery clerk. He was trying to find out how grocery sales were going that week. He didn't even know Ryan was a runner. (laughs) Fastest guy in the world. So so at that point, you had mentioned that the focus was a little bit more on competitive acclimatization versus physiological adjustments, right? Because you were getting trying to figure out getting these guys ready basically for Mexico city. Um, and it was more about what was the impact of racing in the competition at altitude, right? Well, uh, we, we didn't get to do a lot of racing at altitude. We, we did some, I, I think the U S Olympic committee wouldn't let us when, when we, 
when we had the final summer of research at altitude prior to the 68 Olympics, we weren't allowed to have the runners run anything for time. They, they didn't want to discourage them how slow they were going to be, which was pretty bad because the two things you have to prepare to compete at altitude, number one, you have to spend some time there for your body to acclimatize. Number two, you got to practice racing there so you know how races go. Yeah. So there's a competitive acclimatization as well as a physiological acclimatization. You said that you said when Ryan first ran a mile for time, though, right at altitude, he stopped. Right, he had to yeah, take he a break. stopped after a lap and a half. <laughs> he thought, I, "I'm going too fast. I can't keep this up." And then he got mad at himself and rested a while and went ahead and ran. And he ran. And he he was a, there was a sub four minute miler at the time, and his first run at altitude was four twenty six. Wow! So, I mean, it hurt. Talk about. Um, you know, acclimating because we get a lot of runners or you see a lot of runners who will do a marathon at altitude. These are sea level runners. And, and they'll oftentimes say, well, I'm going to go out a little bit earlier so that I can get acclimated. And they go out about three to four days before the race. And um, so, so talk a little bit about how long you would actually have to go out and, and when's the best time if, if you have a recreational runner going out to altitude to race a, a marathon or something like that? Well, it's, it's interesting because we found out that when we take people to altitude, they feel better their first day there than they do, do their third or fourth day there. And why is that, Jeff? The main reason why that is is because when you go to altitude, you, you tend to dehydrate mm. and you you easily lose three or four pounds in those first few days because you're not drinking enough. And if you're dehydrated, you're not going to do well. And you're better off the first day before you're dehydrated than you are the third or fourth day when you're completely dehydrated. So we when people are going to go to altitude, the first thing you tell them is go and make sure you just drink and drink a lot of fluid, a lot of water. And, and if you if you don't have enough time to spend a week or so there, you're better off just to go and run the first day you're there than you are to run the third or fourth day there. Yeah. Do you, so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. They, they, obviously, if you could be there a week or two, that would be that would be ideal. And probably about two or three weeks, you're going to be about as good as you're going to be until you've done it a couple of times. You said that Ryan came down from altitude and broke the world record, right? Was that? Yeah, he did. He on that very trip when when he came up there and ran that terrible 426 mile at altitude after stopping on the first try, he was there for about four weeks and he went down to California and broke the world record. And to this day, he said that was the easiest world record he'd ever run. <laughs> and and in your judgment. Was that more mental than than physiologically, you know, physiologically? Uh, he was the biggest thing you you tend to learn to do when you train at altitude is you learn to hurt. And I think he learned to hurt. And because when he broke that mile world record coming down from Alamosa, he I think in the first lap he had about a 20 meter lead over the second place guy. I mean, he led the entire way. And at the end of the race, he said, that was the easiest mile. He said, I think I could run another one right now. And then it was only a couple of weeks later that he went back to sea level and broke the world record in the 1500. And he beat Keno in that race badly. Wow. Fact, they went out They went out in 61, the first 400 and he broke the world record. His last three, yeah. 
three laps, he ran 246. <laughs> Probably the world record for a 1200. Wow. So were you convinced at that point? What? How did your feeling on altitude at that moment, um, you know, were you convinced that there was something there? It sounds like Ryan was, obviously. Well, actually, yeah, there's, there's two issues. One is going to altitude to prepare for an altitude race, and the other is to go to altitude to train to prepare for sea level race. Mm-hmm. Completely different things. It doesn't mean you do anything different but you got to have what what's the purpose of this trip and because a lot of people even researchers said that if you come down from altitude to race at sea level you got to race within the first few days back down or you lose all the benefits and that is baloney yeah you don't lose anything if you keep training the problem is a lot of people who started going to altitude to train for sea level races they were going up there to train for a sea level championship and they'd come down and they'd run that championship. And then that was it for the season. So they quit training. So how do you know how long the benefits last if you quit training? Yeah. So, I mean, I had that one girl that ran for me later on and went in Corland and she went two or three weeks to altitude, came down and won national championship seven times or just every time she ran it was a national championship she was a 239 800 runner before she went to altitude and she even she kept she kept doing this for three years she kept running national championships so she didn't lose any benefits that she got from altitude i think the biggest benefit you learn is learn how to hurt yeah is that the u.s distance team did really well in 68 right the, oh, yeah, the U.S. runners, we we had a, a third place, I think it was, in the 800, and we had all all of our um, 1,500 runners made the final. Yeah. And we had a bronze medal in the steeplechase, and we had a silver medal in the 1,500. Yeah, Ryan got silver, right? And then we also had um finalist in the 5K. Who, who, what's that? Was it George Young or was he? Oh, George Young was in the steeplechase. Okay, so he won a bronze. Yeah, right? he won a bronze medal, right. In the, in the, we had all three of our steeplechasers go to the final. and, and we, we did well. We had a guy who made the final in the 5,000, Jack Batchelor. <laughs> Love and, that. and we had... Um, our marathoners ran really, I don't remember what places they got, but they all ran well. Yeah. Based on the sea level teams, Americans ran very, very well in those Olympics. They got beat by Africans in most of the distance events. And that, that was around the time when people, they just thought you had to run out to. That was, that's when it started, right? When the African runners started to yeah in and, and dominate uh, distance. distance. The, the African runners all won in Mexico city and that basically gave them the mental feeling that they were good and so yeah. they started winning at sea level <laughs> I, th- I think before before mexico they weren't convinced that they were that much better than everybody else jack on a on a personal level a lot of people don't know that you uh, flying planes was a big part of your life right after that right or you got into flying was it when you were in wisconsin yeah, Wisconsin's when I started becoming a pilot. I what I wanted to do was I wanted to be an astronaut. Ah, and in those days, astronauts were all pilots, and you couldn't even 
be trained to be an astronaut if you hadn't accumulated a couple thousand hours of flight time. And I, I, you know, later on, you could become an astronaut if you were a good physiologist. But originally, you had a, you had a, the original astronauts all had to be pilots. Was this all influenced by Balky? You think in your time with him or no? Probably a little bit. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure. And then I and then I had that one guy that ran for me at Oklahoma City University, Jimmy Gilbert. Yeah. And Jimmy Gilbert's the, the really high tech guy that generated the V dot tables and all that stuff. And and he was a runner, not an unbelievably fast one, but a very dedicated runner. And he got a job working physiology and or computer work for NASA, preparing astronauts for flight time and, and space. So he he's he worked his whole entire career was working for NASA as a computer specialist. Yeah. He's still down there in Houston. And he's the guy who, who called me a couple of years ago to tell me he had just run his 100,000th mile. <laughs> he, he kept track of every mile he'd run and not even, he didn't even count high school and college. He started counting after college and he c- called me to tell me he'd done his 100,000th mile. It averaged out that he had in in 50 years, he averaged 38.6 miles a week for 50 years. Wow. And that's that's quite, and he's still running. He still, he still does, he says uh, about 30, 28 to 30. So I think he told me he does four, four miles a day still. And he's in his mid to late seventies. Wow. And his body is, is in good shape. Yeah. Like he's yeah. Well, that's cool. Um, so from, from, so now you're whipping around in a plane. You had a couple close calls, right? Or were you never, it was never a scary situation from what I read? It was never really dangerous. Uh, the, the most interesting one was when I was flying with a, my my instructor and yeah. his wife. And we, were, we flew out to Montana from Wisconsin and back to visit my brother who lived in Wisconsin. And so the three of us flew out, and I did all the flying because the instructor was just watching and helping me. And we were coming home. It was in the winter. It was cold, and we were coming home, and it was about four degrees outside. And the instructor said, let's go down from a little higher altitude. We've been flying up in the clouds to practice instrument training, and we'd been doing that for a couple hours. And he said, let's get down out of the clouds and do some visual flight so we went down and we were going over this little town in south dakota and i looked at the fuel gauge and looked kind of low and i said let's go get some fuel and he said no we got a great tailwind we'll make the next town and i don't know if he was testing me or what but about 20 minutes later he said we're not going to make the next town he said we came down out of the clouds with our tailwind and we got a headwind now and we're not going to make that town and we had a good probably 30 more minutes to go so so I just flew over and landed in a farmer's field. There was no airport anywhere. And this is in South Dakota. Yeah, and I made a made a good landing. You, you <laughs> practice looking for places when you're flying. A lot of times, I used to have an instructor. He'd he'd sometimes say, "Okay, engines off. What, where are you going to land?" And you'd have to look around and tell him what field you're going to land in. So yeah. I landed in this farmer's yard, and it was a pretty good landing. And but I couldn't taxi because there was about four inches of snow on the ground and I couldn't taxi through it. So I'm sitting there with the plane parked out on this guy's field. The farmer came out in a 
tractor and <laughs> he said, oh, I thought you were Fred. He flies over here every once in a while. <laughs> so he, he hauled our plane back up by his barn and we cleaned things off and he took us into this next town to get five gallons of flight fuel. And the instructor and his wife said, we'll stay in town and you go out with the farmer because that way it'll be a lighter load for uh, for you to fly that plane in by yourself off of his field. Mm. So the farmer put me up, fed me dinner, put me up for the night and next morning helped me get started and we flew into town. And when we got into town, a blizzard hit and we had to stay there for two more days before we could leave. <laughs> Unbelievable! That was quite a quite a trip. Um, <laughs> how, so, how did you get to Texas? Because um, you and your next coaching job was at University of Texas, a big big job. Yeah. It, well, what happened was oh, I finally got my PhD degree at Wisconsin. Okay. I I got that in uh, December. I I graduated in I think it was three and a half years or so, whatever it was, and I got the degree in December, but I stayed for another semester because there weren't many job openings in January. Most of the jobs are open in the fall. So I stayed on and did some postdoctoral work in, at the University of Wisconsin until the next spring. And then I got offered this job to teach exercise physiology, no coaching whatsoever, just teach exercise physiology at the University of Texas in Austin. So I I grabbed that job, and when I got down there, the head track and field coach was a guy who had met me when I was at Oklahoma City, and he thought I was a pretty decent coach. And so he said he was a hurdle coach, and he he coached the hurdlers and sprinters and jumpers, and he needed a distance coach. Would I be interested? So he just offered me the distance job. So I became his assistant, and but he didn't tell me he was looking to leave because when when December came, he left and went to Baylor University to be the athletic director. I think he had graduated from Baylor himself, so it was kind of like going home. And he didn't even tell me he was leaving. So the athletic director at Texas didn't know that I was not leaving. He thought we were both leaving. So he hired two more track coaches. So I was out of a job. But, but, the, new, but the new coach at Texas had brought his own assistant for, for the paid assistant job. But his assistant was a, a jump coach. He wasn't a distance coach. So he, he asked me if I wanted to coach the distance runners at Texas. And I, I said, yeah, but I, I need to get some kind of pay for it. And he said, well, we haven't got any money. So then he finally came back and said that he'd gotten the Alumni Association to raise $3,000 so I could be the distance coach. So I became the distance coach at the University of Texas. But Having come from Wisconsin, which was a pretty liberal university, a lot like Cal Berkeley back yeah. in the Vietnam era, uh, I was used to just about anything. But he had rules that none of the athletes on the team at Texas could have long hair or sideburns. And he called us all in one day and said, what do you think? And uh, this this one kid on the team had little sideburns. And I said, well, it's OK with me. And as soon as I said that, he said, you're done. Right. I hope you're good done wow so i was no longer a coach at texas so texas i mean huge university they're barely paying you you're the official coach and this is how this is how they let you go well I, they, they didn't let me go i i continued to teach but but not coach. I, I was I had a friend a physiology friend who offered me a job at the university of hawaii okay 
So that so I, I took that job at the University of Hawaii. And as most of my life has been, every time I do something, something's changed. Because the, when I went to Hawaii, they dropped the sport of track and cross country for men. Yeah. They only have women. So you just and taught there. So I taught there because they had a women's coach. He was a very nice guy, actually. Yeah, good, we were good friends. But uh, while, while I was at Hawaii, the head of the physical education department back at Texas, a lady, called me and said, do you want to come back to Texas and start women's track and cross country? Because we're talking about, you know, 1970s. Yeah. They started women's athletics in college. And so they were going to start a women's program. And she offered me the job to become the head women's track and cross country coach. So I accepted that and I went back to Texas after one year in uh, Honolulu and became the women's coach. And we did well. We won the conference in cross country and track and it, well, it, went, it went well. What was your coaching like there compared to Oklahoma City? What what was your approach? Anything different by that point or? Um, not not yeah. really. I mean, I was still just learning type different types of you know repetitions and intervals and some thresh thread not too much threshold back then but mostly repetitions and intervals and, and a long run now and then and the texas the high school programs back in texas uh, were i don't know how they've changed now but they were more oriented towards speed work mm-hmm. the athletes in texas high schools are really really good in the short events and back then, distance wasn't a big thing. It got better over the years. When I went there, they didn't even have high school in Texas. When I went to the University of Texas, did not have the sport of cross country for girls in high school. They only had track. And I, I got the high school coaches to all ask to have cross country. And they they added, so the, the, the league commission added girls cross country to the program because i talked them into it that's cool was there a lot of pushback on that jack or no was it hard well the the interesting thing about it was that when they first started girls cross country in in high school in texas the distance was one mile Hmm. and i was i was actually on the side coaching a high school team as well as the university team and my high school team we went to a meet one time and to warm up. We jogged over the cross country course. We heard these girls from another high school say, did you see that? They, they ran the entire course for a warm up. <laughs> we jogged an entire mile to warm up. <laughs> That's funny. It was unbelievable. But now then they, a few years later, they moved it to two miles. And I think, I think that's it's different among different leagues now. The size of the school. Some schools have a longer race than others. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what happens after Texas. Once you leave there, you you go to Ottawa, right? Is that right? Well, I actually Hawaii in Ottawa. What I actually did. Well, I I was working summers in Ottawa, hmm. and because of a friend of mine from from my PhD years up in in Wisconsin was a Canadian and they they got me a job working summers in Ottawa for for the Canadian Sports Association it was it was more administrative type work but it was good and, and it led to me actually getting offered the job of working on the 1976 Olympics 
as a television commentator for the modern pentathlon. I covered the modern pentathlon sport because Canada didn't have any pentathletes. So they didn't have anybody who could talk on TV about oh, wow. sport. So I was offered that. I became the TV commentator for the sport for the Olympic Games in 76 in Ottawa. Or in, that was in, a lot of fun. Yeah, that was, it was fun. I, I got to see a, a poor Russian guy get disqualified because he cheated in the fencing event. How did you how do you cheat in fencing? I don't even well, know. In the epee fencing that you do, it's it's electrical. So you have electrical cord, and there's a button on the on the tip of your blade that depresses to closes electric circuit because you got a a plug in your goes up your sleeve and out the back of your jacket. Yeah. And if if you touch another person, it closes the electrical circuit in your point and it goes back and registers on a little box that are an official sitting on the side of the fencing strip. And there's a light that goes off on this side or a light goes off on that side. And whichever one goes off first, that was the one that was touched, touched first. And what he did, he somehow finagled his cords and his, because the cord comes down your blade and then it goes up your sleeve and then out the back of your jacket. And somewhere where it went through his hand, he had fixed the cord so he could press it with his thumb and close the circuit. He, did, he didn't have to make a touch. <laughs> or a touch. So he could just point his blade out there and press this little button in his hand and it made it look like he'd touched his opponent. <laughs> so you were, you were covering this as a commentator. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, the weird thing is they caught him doing it. A British guy... So figured it out and he caught him doing it. And, and um, so they took his blade into a, a committee meeting to look at it. And while he, while he, they were doing that, they gave him another blade to fence with and he won nine of his next 12 bouts. He was good. He didn't need to cheat. Wow. We never, we never learned if he actually did it or if some of the officials that brought him there made him do it. We don't know. Jack. All we know is that the Russian team was disqualified and he lost his professional status in the country of Russia. Wow. Do you do you agree with that? Like especially current currently, there's a lot of people that advocate for, you know, if you cheat or you get caught cheating in sport that you should be banned. Should it be a lifetime ban? I mean, what do you think of that? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Maybe it depends on how serious cheating is <laughs> yeah what was there the are some that aren't as serious as others but uh sure i I, th I think it's probably be best if you could just say if you cheat you're done period yeah. because yeah. that simplifies it we don't have to decide it is this enough cheating or is this not enough cheating you're either legal or you're illegal what was the study jack that you referenced about um athletes basically debating between their health and winning an Olympic medal, like they'd be willing to um, give up years of their life. Right. What was the study? Or what was yeah, the that, was a, that was, I didn't, I wasn't involved in the study, but there's somebody did the study yeah. where they asked a, a whole lot of elite athletes. If I could guarantee you, if I could guarantee you a, a gold medal in the Olympics, would you be willing to give up 10 years of your life? And it was and a strong majority, right? That said, yeah. Where around 80% of them said yes, they would do it. 
and a, a small percent, something like 15 percent, said they would do it even if they only lived 10 more years. <laughs> Not if they gave up 10 years of life, but they only lived 10 more years total. Wow. For anybody to say they're willing to do that, that, that makes sport look kind of weird. Yeah, that's unbelievable. I'd love to see what it would be this day and age. I feel like the Olympics were probably w- even more prestigious. There were less sporting events back then. Um, I'd be interested to see what what that would look like today with with modern athletes. Um, interesting. Yeah. So so Jack, then talk about. Um, I want to talk cover Nike. It's such a big topic. Um, you spent. Uh, a nice chunk of your life working for Nike, right? But I have no idea how it even started, how you even got to New Hampshire. Well, it's, it started kind of weird. As I mentioned, every seemed like every job I ever have it gets canceled out. Because <laughs> uh, I was at Texas coaching the women and having a good time doing it, and but I was still having to teach. So I was the head coach and still having to teach, and teaching teaching was paying for 25% of my salary and coaching was paying for 75%. And I asked the athletic department if they could pick up the other 25%, I wouldn't have to teach anymore. I could just coach. And they said they didn't have that kind of money. And I think back then I was making like 20,000 or something like that. Yeah. And I think I was getting 15,000 for coaching and 5,000 for teaching. So I said, could you pick up that other 5,000? And they said, no, we haven't gotten that kind of money. So because I didn't want to have to be a physiology teach, co- coach or teacher and still be the head coach for women's track and cross country with no assistance, I, I decided that uh, that was enough. I couldn't keep doing that. So I left and went to work for for Nike. A guy offered me a job. I, I didn't apply. He, he just offered me a job. He had offered me one earlier because he knew about my research and uh, Nike had a was opening a research center in Exeter, New Hampshire. So that's where I went. I, I became the exercise physiologist running running physiology research at the Exeter facility in Exeter, New Hampshire, which is about an hour outside of Boston, an hour and a half outside of Boston, I think. This is and, early 80s and, and before you had met Jeff Johnson? Started, that started in, in, in 80, yeah. And uh, so I, I got that job, and I had two lab assistants, students, interesting ones. One was named Nancy Scardina, <laughs> who became some years later Nancy Daniels. And the other one was Joan Benoit, who became the Olympic gold medalist in the women's first ever marathon in the Olympic Games. So Joni, Joni and Nancy were my two lab assistants, and that, that they were good. Nancy won New England titles about seven times while she was she ran at the University of New Hampshire yeah. and was very very successful there. And I even helped coach the women at the University of New Hampshire. And so, while. so how did was it Jeff Johnson um, who hired you, or you met Jeff after you got hired to come out to Exeter? Jeff Jeff Johnson, by the way. He he was involved in starting the Nike. Yeah, his second employee, right? Number two. Yeah, he was their first employee. Oh, first, excuse me. Yeah, first employee. Yeah, first employee of the Nike organization. He he uh, had gone to Stanford University to get his master's degree, and that's where he met the guy who was the head of Nike. And 
they became good friends. And so Jeff had been the U.S. distributor of Tiger Shoes. Mm. And so he knew shoes, shoes pretty well. And so Nike hired him and they put him in charge of the Exeter, New Hampshire facility. So he was my boss at Exeter. And Jeff was a really, really great guy. But as typical, every job I have disappears. <laughs> well, After three years, three years in Exeter. Yeah. Loving, loving the work I was doing. And what were you doing? Just mostly testing, Just um, testing. economy and things like that and the different shoes? Yeah, we did all. Every time they make a new shoe, we'd have a bunch of people run in that shoe to see if they were more economical in that shoe than they were in a, another shoe. Which shoes were more economical? In other words, which which cost the least amount of energy to run in? Yeah, we did all kinds of little studies. Like we we did a study where we did, determined how people landed. Did they land in their forefoot or land in their rear foot? Uh, and we we had a group of runners who were subjects for us, who, who ran a 20-miler on the treadmill one day. Oof. And we tested them every 30 minutes to see how, how much their economy changed as they got tired. And all, all kinds of different little studies. They were interesting studies. And they, we always had lots of subjects available will, willing to do studies like that. And you said, Jack, that sometimes people were more economical going rear foot. Some were better going rear to forefoot. Yeah, it, it varied because there's still arguments about that, which is better. Because I know this, the study we did, we we had the average, all, all studies, you come up with an average, a mean value. And the average value said that it was more economical to land rear foot. But there were some of the subjects in the study who were more economical landing forefoot. So they don't all... They're not the same. And we don't know why. Why is one person more economical landing forefoot and another one more economical landing rear foot? I, I kind of thought maybe it was how big your foot was. Because this one subject who had always run rear foot, we tested her. It was a, a girl runner. We tested her running rear foot. And we tested her running forefoot. And she was more economical running forefoot. And she had never practiced forefoot before in her life. And we had another a guy who'd never run anywhere but forefoot. And the first time he ran rear foot, he was more economical. And I'm, I'm almost to thinking we didn't follow up with more research in that area. I'm thinking maybe it has something to do with the size of your foot. Because mm. that girl who was more economical forefoot had a very, very small, like a size six or something shoe. Maybe if you got a little bitty foot, you're more economical landing forefoot. And if you got a big, long foot, maybe you're more economical landing rear foot. I don't know. And so yeah. studies like that were just always going on. And then, of course, uh, the head of Nike yeah, said yeah. they would drop the Exeter facility and close Close the East Coast facilities completely. So that I was working there, I guess. <laughs> so, well, you also had another um, famous co-worker. So you had Joan Benoit was an assistant there. You met your wife in this lab. Jeff yeah. Johnson, the first Nike employee, he named the company. And then right. also, I, I never understood how Mark Parker, he was the footwear designer while he was in the research lab, how he ended up there. No, yeah, it was it was interesting because there were three of us that all got hired the same day. Yeah. I got hired to run the exercise physiology research, and 
another guy got hired to, to do um, biomechanics research, and Mark was hired to draw pictures of shoes. <laughs> I mean, he was an artist. He had a master's degree in art, and that's that was his big big thing. And every time we'd get a, a new shoe or the idea that we needed something different. He'd, he'd draw pictures of it, and that's what they'd make. It was interesting. Yeah, so Mark Parker, for those listening who don't know, was the CEO. He was the third CEO of, became the third CEO of Nike. I think he started, what, the s- same week as you, Jack, with the company, or did he start a little bit earlier? Yeah, no, we started the same week. Out in Asia, yeah. Also for the same salary. Yeah. <laughs> Three of us were all hired the same day for the same salary, and... Mark became CEO and I just kept on coaching. Yeah, yeah. His salary became a little bit bigger, that's for sure. Um, so Nike, you end up going out to Oregon. You do you have the stint with Athletics West. You you end up testing Alberto Salazar um quite often. I think you had said at one point he's maybe the the athlete you've probably tested the most, right? Oh, yeah, there was no doubt. Uh, so when they closed the Exeter facility, oh, and by the way, I had tested Joni Benoit for VO2 Max several times. And her VO2 Max was 78.6. And that, to this day, is the highest female VO2 Max ever been tested in the world. Oh, man. For, for a runner. She's unbelievable. Joni, Joni's unbelievable. Well, she still is. But I know. Uh, so... They they offered they offered us to come out to Oregon when they closed the Exeter facility, yeah. In in, in different categories, I, I was I was only one that actually went to Athletics West of the three of us from my lab in Exeter. The others went up and in or into UG or into uh, Portland, Oregon. Mm. But so I was running the exercise physiology lab for three years, and as you mentioned, I. Got to test Alberto a lot. He just liked being tested for some reason. He wanted to know as much as he could possibly know about everything. And if he had a new pair of long running shorts or long pants to wear, I had to test him to see if they were economical or not. (laughs) Every time he got a new pair of shoes, I'd test him to see if they were more economical than the other. We got along really well. And and his wife was really a good runner, too. And she got along really well with Nancy. Because as I got to bring Nancy with me as as a lab assistant at, at AW, yeah. So we lived in, in Athletics West there for three years and just tested and t- well, I mean we tested everybody. I can't remember the names of all of them, but there were there were all all the elite. In fact, uh, Nike had a deal with all the Athletics West athletes, the ones who were in their their club getting financially assisted. Yeah, uh, they had. A, they had a, an arrangement that they had to be tested at least once or twice a year. So the ones who didn't live in Eugene had to be flown in to be tested. So that we, I got to meet all the elite runners that were with, with Nike at that time, men, men and women. So we did lots, lots of, of research. Yeah, I remember when Lynn Jennings did our coaching clinic and she attributed you testing her. She was a young, young athlete. She attributed a lot of her success to that moment. Just you sort of giving her the confidence, you know, um, the testing and the stuff you talked about with her. That's pretty cool. Uh, It does help to to see physiological characteristics 
improve. Do you feel like it could be limiting for an athlete where they feel like it, it sort of puts a limit on them or it, it puts them in a box in terms of their well, ability to improve? That back in the early days and not that long ago, mm-hmm. for instance, specifically when I was in Sweden in the 1950s and then 60s, VO2 max was considered the measure of an endurance athlete, period. If you had a high VO2 max, you were a good athlete. And if you didn't have one, you weren't. But we definitely showed that economy is very, very important. Yeah. And if you don't have a very high VO2 max, but you're very economical, then you're just as good as somebody with a high VO2 max who isn't very economical. Yeah. And that, for, for example, Alberto Salazar had a, high, had a pretty high VO2 max. He was in upper 70s. It was about equal to Joni Benoit. <laughs> they were equal in VO2 max. But Alberto's marathon time was considerably faster than Joni's. But Alberto was the second most economical runner I've ever tested. Wow. And who's who's the first? What's that? Who was the first? Do you remember? Most economical? Uh, yeah, I do. And I can't remember his name. He, 800? Jeff Wells. Jeff Wells, yeah. Jeff Wells ran at, at I think he ran at, um, down in Houston, not at the University of Houston. I don't think. I'm not sure. It might have been the University of Jeff became a, a priest, I think. Yeah. Jeff Wells was the, let's see, he ran at Rice. Rice, you're, you're right. That's in Houston. Yeah, he's a pastor. He finished first in the 76 Houston Marathon, Dallas Marathon, um, yeah. the Stockholm Marathon. Wow. The most economical runner that I've ever tested to this day. And I think Alberto was the second most. Wow, that's interesting. Um, I just remember at being around athletes when I was still training more often that you know, they felt insecure when they found out someone had a VO two max in the seventies and they were 68 or something, you know, they've oh, right. they felt insecure. They, they didn't know this was only, I don't know, 2002, 2003. They, at that point, I remember being around athletes who felt insecure by, by their VO two max score. Yeah. Actually the only benefit of being tested for VO two max is over time to see if it's improving. Yeah. In other words, just to be tested once, number number one, you you don't know where you're going. How much more can you improve that VO2 max with training? If you're only just tested once and you don't have a very high number, that doesn't mean you can't improve it. Yeah. So not an absolute fact. So Jack, you say once you're done with Nike, you you talk about well, how did you get to Cortland at that point? Um, I think that was your next step, right? Nike closed the Exeter facility after three months. And then after three months at Athletics West, they came in one day on a Friday and said, get your stuff out of here by noon. Uh, we're closing this facility. Wow. So the Athletics West facility in Eugene, Oregon was completely closed, just completely all at once. And I had actually been, even while I was still working there, I had been looking at college coaching jobs with the idea that I might move and not stay at Nike. Yeah. So I had, I had already been kind of offered an interview for the Cortland job before Nike closed that facility. Okay. So when I got that offer, I, I went ahead and, and took it to start coaching. Mean, originally I was only to coach the men, not the women, but the women's coach left after one year. So then I had both men and women at SUNY Cortland. And that's, and Cortland's really where you settled down. You, you got married, you 
at Ken. Well, well, actually, we got married in Eugene. Oh, you did before you moved. And I got married in Eugene, Oregon before we left there. Was it raining and, at the wedding? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And actually, our wedding was in Cincinnati, Ohio, where Nancy's home is. Okay. And, uh, and then that first year, we had our first daughter, Audra. And then it was another about four or five years before we had Sarah, our second daughter. Okay. Audra was actually born in Oregon. Oh, she and was. I didn't know that. Good. So we, we'd, been, we'd been married a fair time before Nike closed the facility in, in Eugene. Yeah. And, um, and, no, go ahead. Well, the, the, the Cortland thing was, was really interesting because number one, it was a division three program still is. So there's no scholarships at all. So you just have to recruit what you can get with people who are willing to pay their way to go. Yeah. And, but the fortunate side is that compared to many of the big Division One schools, Corland wasn't as expensive. It's a state university, and it has been a state university. A really, really good one. The, the biggest advantage is that when they developed the whole SUNY system, State University of New York, collegiate system and they have campuses all over the state then originally each one of them was kind of step set aside for concentrating on on these things like this one's going to concentrate maybe on pre-med and this one's going to concentrate on art and this one's going to concentrate on something else and SUNY Cortland, our main concentration was physical education i think out of out of about i think through 3,000 students, we had about 1,500 of them were majoring in physical education when I came here. In fact, you had to be a, to be a coach, you had to be a professor in the physical education department. And to be a coach, when I came to Cortland, you had to have a PhD degree. Even the football coach did. So it didn't matter what sport you were coaching, basketball, football, track, swimming, you were expected to have a PhD. You could Get hired without it, but I think you had five years to get it. Or if you didn't get it in those five years, then you had to leave. Hmm. And it's not the same anymore. I think you can you can be hired now with a master's degree, but the P majors were about half the student body. Wow. So naturally, if you have a, a whole bunch of students coming in every year who are interested in physical education, teaching physical education, or sport, you're going to have a lot of athletes. So that's why we were able to recruit so many good runners. And it's New York State, right? It's a good. That's a good um, feed, oh, feeder. Well, the high are great. Yeah, um, they're very strong. So Jack, when you started, so you had a little break for a while from coaching. You were doing more of the the studies and the research with Nike, and then. Um, when you started coaching again at Cortland, at that point, had you developed sort of the, the methodology that ended up forming the book? Were you coaching essentially by the book before the book was published at that point? Yeah, I think so. That's probably true because we started we started doing a lot of blood lactate measures before that was before that was popular. Okay. Before they made those little machines that you can easily do finger sticks and all that. And you were and, using tables that, that you had at that point, VDOT tables? Yeah, yeah we were using the VDOT tables. In fact, that it's interesting because what I did at Cortland, I explained to the to all the track and field 
and cross-country runners how the VDOT worked. And I said, if and they knew how much, if they had to do a workout, they all had to learn what the most they could do in any type of workout. For instance, the interval workout, I told them that not, they can't do more than 8% of their weekly mileage and repetition is 5% of their weekly mileage and stuff like that. Yeah. Just, just little amounts of things that I taught them all to do. And all I had to really do when I came into a workout for today's workout, all I had to write on the board, do interval thousands today, mm. period. That's all I had to say. Because wow. each person on the team knew how many they had, could do based on their weekly mileage. They knew how fast they had to do them based on their VDOT value. And they knew how much recovery you took when you did intervals. So basically, it was my book being expressed by word. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to start I used to start getting all kinds of high school coaches writing me letters and or faxing me notes saying, could you explain this to me or explain this to me or why do you do this? And after a few years of doing that, I decided, why in the world should I have to answer all these coaches if I can't just write a book and they can all get it without contacting me every week? So you you implemented this methodology, all of a sudden, Cortland just gets really good. Your reputation as a coach at that point takes off, and now co- high school coaches are starting to contact you. Yeah, Since- that's that's basically what happened. Was we started we started winning quite a bit uh, first, just around the state, and then nationally. I think we won. I think we won cross country national seven times in in the years I was here. And we, we had 30, 30 individual national champions and we had 130 All-Americans. So we, we, we did, did really, really well. I remember you guys would come up to Spike Shoe, the Penn State invite, and you'd, you'd beat, beat up on a lot of the Division One schools, most of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we did well. We used to run Penn State. We used to run that, what, What's that other place down in Benson? Lehigh, right? Paul Short? Lehigh, yeah. We used to run the Lehigh meet every year. We we won it one year against Division One schools. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, yeah, incredible success. So, all right, it Jack. Was, it was fun. It was fun, the, the, the years coaching at Cortland. I've been over 